Welcome to Locally Grown in Arizona, a podcast series where we speak with people that dream big and do hard things. They innovate, create, and help our local communities to thrive. I'm your host, Regina Revazova. I have Christine Workham in my studio. She is the Director of Media Relations at the Wildlife World Zoo we all love. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And yeah, I'm definitely a part of Wildlife World Zoo Aquarium and Safari Park. And I've been there going on 14 years now. Oh my goodness. So I wanted to ask you all about the zoo. But first I start with talking about people. And you just bring all this like bright, nice, really, really cool energy with you. So tell me about yourself because, you know, behind every great enterprise or business or nonprofit is a human being. So I'm really curious to learn about you. Well, animals have always been my first love. Ever since a small child, I have always lived in remote areas where I can go out, be among the wildlife. And I knew from a very young age, animals were something I wanted to help. And I wanted to inspire others to want to help. And that's how I got into the industry. I actually went out to Wildlife World to volunteer. And I was hoping to get accepted into a college in California and specialize in exotic animal management and training. But while I was at Wildlife World volunteering, the owner, Mickey Olson, said that he saw something in me that I didn't need such a specialized degree, and I was able to work my way up from the bottom, and that's what I've done. And now I've been there going on 14 years, and I couldn't be happier because I'm in the position I always saw myself as a child being in, where I'm able to be a voice, you know, for conservation and help others want to conserve and inspire them to want to protect these animals that are having a really hard time doing it themselves. Yeah, no, this is interesting. And before I get into your whole Africa trip, because this is like an elephant in the room, if you will, (laughs) (laughs) I really want to talk about it. I want to tell you that I see some similarities with them with Mickey Olson, because I know that he dreamt this whole zoo concept as a child, too. So tell me a little bit more about, like you said, you lived in the areas that were a little bit remote and you were exposed to the animals. Like, what are we talking about here? So I grew up most of my childhood up in New River, which is the northern part of the Phoenix area. And there's lots of native wildlife up there. I mean, we every morning would see lots of quails and bunnies. And I came across lots of different types of snakes, which I love the misunderstood animals too. The animals, you know, that not everyone appreciates. I think snakes definitely fall into that category. Coyotes and javelina. And it was just something growing up there. You know, when I first lived up there, there wasn't a lot of residential. It was extremely rural. And I was able to see how development impacted these animals. As more houses were built, these animals had less of a range and less of a habitat to thrive in. And that was something that always stuck with me as a child. And it's something I see being a problem across the entire world. These animals are losing so much of their land. And oftentimes with a lot of those species, that's their number one cause. And their numbers are decreasing at such an alarming rate. Interesting. So is that what inspired you to become volunteer? I know you're leaving overseas soon. Can you tell me more about it? Yes. So giraffes are one of those animals that are just so iconic. Everyone knows what a giraffe is, but very few people know that giraffes are silently slipping into extinction. When oh. you hear, right? Does it's, No, I did not know. And most people have that exact same reaction. Um, because when you think of Africa and you think of conserving different populations and species there, usually the first thing that comes to mind are elephants. Sure. However, in Africa, there are four times as many elephants as there are giraffes. 
did not know. Yeah. Even conservationists didn't realize how the numbers were decreasing so quickly with giraffes and the problem that they were having. And they have a lot of different problems out there that are contributing to their numbers disappearing at such an alarming rate. And there's a lot of statistics that are just terrifying when you think about a species and how quickly they're slipping away. In the last three decades, their numbers have decreased anywhere between 40 and 50 percent. Wow. Yeah. And their number one threats are habitat loss, like I was kind of touching on earlier, and poaching. Poaching is definitely a big problem that we all are aware of in Africa, especially with what's going on with coronavirus right now. All their ecotourism has come to a stop, and that was a huge revenue stream for a lot of the locals and natives there. So, Wow. So why, like, what is in giraffe? That is it skin or what is it? That's a fantastic question because with elephants, we think of ivory, and the giraffe definitely don't have that. They're being poached for their hide and also for their meat. They produce a lot of meat. It's a food supply. Wow, never thought about it. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why it's just it's so important, and I'm so grateful to be on your show this morning because the awareness is essential to the survival of these animals, people getting behind it, because giraffe conservation is also one of the least funded conservation efforts out there. We just don't hear that. I mean, I've heard of any other species, but not giraffes. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's great. So, Christy, tell me, how is it going to work? Like, are you going to be part of the group of volunteers, right? Like, what are you guys going to do? So, Save Giraffes Now is one of the world's largest giraffe conservation organizations. They are unbelievable. We are so proud at Wildlife World to be partnering with them. Because also, as you know, um, sometimes with some of these nonprofits, um, you donate and not every dollar gets to the front sure. lines. And, you know, a lot of times it's not the fault of the organization. You know, it takes money to conserve However, with Save Giraffes Now, all the donations they receive go to boots on the ground conservation. So we realize we need to help get the word out. As a zoo, our whole goal is conservation. And to be partnering with a conservation group doing so much boots on the ground, that was our number one priority is to help spread the word, create awareness as to what's going on and help generate some conservation funds, some donations, because donations are the first step to being able to put out these different conservation efforts. After discussion back and forth with Save Drafts Now and talking about the work that they're doing in Africa, I'm actually going to be accompanying them in Africa. It's really great when uh, you can take the knowledge that you learn from these animals under human care and apply it to saving their wild counterparts. So we both have different strengths that we're able to bring to the project. And what they're doing is they're going to be rescuing the last remaining five giraffes off this island in Kenya. So these giraffes were put on a peninsula to help better protect them from poachers. Sure. Well, the water started to rise and the peninsula is now turned into an island. And these giraffes are running out of food. And they don't have very much space. If the water keeps rising and it looks like it's going to, this island's going to disappear and giraffes cannot swim. Okay. So they've created a giraffe. It's a raft. <laughs> they've nicknamed the giraffe. And um, they've already rescued four of the giraffes off the island. And it's unbelievable when you think about everything that is going into this getting giraffes on a raft getting them over to the mainland into a preserve sure. they've created for these animals to thrive and 
it's been a huge task. And so we're going to go over there and get the other four uh, remaining giraffes off. I'm sorry, five remaining. That's they so had a baby born. Oh, <laughs> yes. oh, that's so cool. Little Noel. And that's a commonality we have that, oh, it's just so great. So they have their little baby Noel that was born right around the same time that we had our little baby Noel born at Wildlife World. That right there is really special. And our breeding program at Wildlife World is something to be really proud of. It's a big deal in the world of conservation. We've had about a dozen giraffes born over the last 19 years. Wow. So to be able to contribute to the genetic diversity of a species that's declining so rapidly is really important. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of to mention, I heard that you guys got new rhino for the breeding purposes, right? We did. We have so many amazing things going on right now at Wildlife World in Tell the world everything. of conservation. It's, I know it's like an endorphin high. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, rhinos are another one of those species that need our help. If something isn't done right now to the amount of poaching that's going on to the white rhinos, they could be extinct from the wild in South Africa alone in the next decade. And rhinos could be extinct as a whole from the wild within our lifetime. So another animal that's just dealing with a lot out there, they're not dealing with it well themselves. It's important that we step in and do everything we can to sustain the species. And we've done that at Wildlife World by creating this amazing breeding program that's been over a decade in the works. And when you think about how quickly the numbers are declining in the wild and how long it takes to put some of these conservation projects in, into play, I mean, it's definitely alarming. Yeah. And we started that project by first importing three female white rhinos from South Africa to Arizona, which was no easy feat. Uh, we had to have them protected by armed guards 24 hours a day for months before we got them out of Africa. They were orphaned rhinos. They are all three unrelated. So what that means for the world of conservation is that's three brand new bloodlines that have zero relation to any of the populations that are managed under human care. Then after that, we needed a very special male rhino that also has a similar background. And San Diego Zoo had a male white rhino that was once imported from South Africa and genetically is very significant to the three females that we have since there is zero relation. So they have loaned that male to us. We are now able to go into the next stages of our breeding program, which are going to be baby rhinos. It's <laughs> <laughs> the best. <laughs> yes. So... Um, We're entering that phase. Mayoto is our male. He is getting along brilliantly with our females. And it's so wonderful to be able to sit back and see everyone's hard work paying off because it was so much work and time and planning and research to get to where we're at now. And we're finally there. So how does it work, Christy? Like when the babies are born and they're like, you know, can, you know, sustain themselves more or less, like what happens then? That is a fantastic question, and it's a very big part of conservation. So our breeding programs are to create genetic diversity for these different species, and they work like an insurance policy. Um, and even species that are on the front lines of extinction or their numbers aren't decreasing at the rate of some of those other animals, it's still important to have these insurance policies put into place. And I think Australia is a great example of that. What happened in Australia when those fires just wreaked havoc on the wildlife there, and so many species were lost forever because there were not 
those insurance policies, those insurance plans put into place that were managed under human care with the amount of genetic diversity that it takes to sustain an entire population. And once there are offspring, then you take into consideration um, the genetic lines of that offspring, the significance of the genetic lines, and where the population is as a whole. And you kind of go from there. So Mm. there's so much that goes into just one baby. And it starts out with, okay, is it best to have this animal parent-raised or hand-raised? And that's a difficult question. And it's decided on an individual basis. So Mm. even if you have a species that does better being parent-raised, for example, there might be circumstances that make that particular baby better being hand-raised. Maybe um, the baby was born with a health condition or needs to be closer monitored to ensure the survival, and that wouldn't be possible if it was being parent-raised. Or some species do better being hand-raised than parent-raised, like a little Thompson's gazelle. In the wild, they're very low on the food chain, and they're very quick to switch into flight or fight. Mm-hmm. Now, these animals are going to live their entire lives in a zoological setting around different noises, around people, and um, we want to make sure that they have the best possible quality of life. That's definitely our responsibility. And by hand-raising those animals, they are such a better, well-adjusted adult, mm. and they live such a better quality of life because keys don't bother them, kids, other animals, they're so much more comfortable. And once they reach a certain point, they're able to go back with the herd. The herd Mm -hmm. accepts them back in, and you just have a much more comfortable herd being hand-raised than being parent-raised where little things are going to make them uncomfortable. And then when you're talking about, let's say, jaguars, for instance, Mm -hmm. which are endangered and um, you have jaguar cubs, you're going to want those cubs to go to a facility that has unrelated jaguar cubs that can continue the breeding program. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it means to have these breeding programs managed under human care is all these variables and factors are taken into consideration as these animals get older, as the breeding program grows, and as um, the species conservation status changes in the wild. That's so fascinating. Like, I had no idea. I, I thought I knew everything about the zoo because I just visited it, like, I think a couple of months ago for a Christmas light. Uh-huh. Right? Like, yeah. I thought I know everything and I don't know anything. So thank That's you so much. That's why I much. love what I do <laughs> because, yeah. you know, it's important information. And when people are educated, they can make educated decisions and they can help support the animals that need the help and support out in the For wild. sure. For sure. No, this is very, very vital information, I think, for everybody, for our listeners, for myself, including, right? So, Christy, let me ask you this. The zoo has really interesting history. And if you could touch upon it a little bit, like I had no idea it's family owned, right? It's a very local, would you say business? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we can absolutely call it a business. And yes, okay, so the history of Wildlife World is so special, and I'm so excited to get the opportunity to share it with all of you guys, because it was started by Mickey Olson. Mickey Olson was a school teacher, and he retired as a school teacher to open up Wildlife World, and he started by breeding exotic birds, 
for the most part. It was mainly, I mean, he started when he was really young doing guinea pigs and um, little parakeets. Yeah, parakeets. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, I have them, too. I love They're parakeets. So, yeah, I know. They're so cute. And uh, worked his way up to breeding rare and exotic birds for zoos like San Diego Zoo. So our relationship with them dates back decades. He was obviously very gifted, and education is something that's been extremely important to him, being a school teacher for his career. He decided to open up Wildlife World back in 1984. It was very tiny. Um, I've actually been going there since I was like one years old in diapers running around. I was so excited when I came across the pictures and could show him, and he knew exactly how old I was and what year that picture was taken wow. based on a sweet little Wiscovy duck that was in the picture. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's phenomenal. I know. Yeah. Um, so he is a really smart businessman, too, thankfully, because he's been able to grow the zoo to what it is today. We were able to survive being shut down over five months due to the pandemic. And what he's been able to do for wildlife conservation in our community is just unbelievable. And he's done that by starting really small. He develops an area. He pays that area off. He saves up half the money he needs for the next area. And then if he needs to, he borrows the other half. Then he pays that off, saves up money for the next area. And that's kind of the model he's had as he's expanded the zoo. But this is something, like you mentioned, he's always wanted to do. Wildlife has been something so near and dear to his heart since he was a child. And he was a little tiny kid who stayed home from school with, uh, I can't remember if it was measles or mumps. It was, I think, chicken pox Chicken or something. pox, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some sort of illness. And um, his mother gave him pen and paper and told him to color. And he drew a map of the zoo he wanted to own one day. And the map is so special and so unbelievable. And he kind of forgot about it. Well, after his mother passed and he was going through his mother's belongings, he came across this map that he drew as a young child. And it's so similar to the original part of the zoo. It's unbelievable and it's so cute. It has the little legend and legend is spelled incorrectly. Um, and it was laminated because his mother had it laminated. So That's she so knew cute. it was something special. Yeah. yeah. And um, he kept the map in his desk and he would kind of pull it out and show it to people. But he is very modest and he wasn't like showing it off to everyone. But I was obsessed with this map. And so I was going around telling a story to everyone. And then Fox wanted to do a story about it. After the story, his map went missing. And I was like, Mickey, what did you do with your map? Because he kept losing it. This was like the 15th time that he had lost his map because oh, he just no. throws it in his desk. So I had my friend Anita who actually shot the story review some footage and she's like no at the end of the story he puts it back in his desk so i'm like pulling the drawers out of his desk <laughs> and uh, right at the top stuck was his map so i pulled it out and i'm like okay we are not losing your map oh again so his daughter and i actually got together and i think it was for christmas we had it framed and um the original invitation to the zoo put in the frame and the current map and now it's really special nice. hanging on his wall oh that's so cool so is it at his house or it's somewhere in, the in zoo? his office oh awesome yeah tell me about the animals there at the zoo i know that and i have no idea how it works but i suspect it's because of the climate that's why we normally have animals from africa and south america is that correct or it's my uneducated assessment no you're bringing up an excellent topic because animals they come from all over the world. And we know here in Arizona, we have a very different climate than a lot of other places that are more of a temperate climate. So all of our animals 
have the specific things they need to make sure that they're comfortable year round. But most of our outdoor animals are from places like Africa and Australia, places that get really hot and really dry. So they have special adaptations to help them thrive in this environment. And that's why we have so many successful breeding programs is because our climate mimics their natural environment so closely. But we do have lots of creatures that are from more of a temperate climate. And that's why we have so many indoor animal exhibit buildings. And we have exhibits that can be completely regulated um, as far as the ambient temperature goes. And then we have some exhibits that are indoor and outdoor exhibits where they can self-regulate. And then so many of our exhibits out as you're walking the grounds have areas off exhibit that are climate controlled where they have air conditioned housing or um, heated housing, whatever they're more sensitive to, some of them both. That way they can just self-regulate, get comfortable and People are always talking about how when you come out, you see everything, you're so close to the animals. And that has a lot to do with it because they don't have to, you know, be hiding out the whole time. They're they're comfortable, they're out, and um, people are able to see them that way. Guests are happy, animals are happy. (laughs) It's a (laughs) win-win. That's cool. Thank you. I want to just make a quick observation. You came in with this light, you know, kind of aura around you. And I have a theory that is personally mine. I've never researched it. I have parakeets and I oftentimes just sit down in my living room. They fly all over the place. They just go into the cage to eat and then fly out. But I love watching them. I just love sitting and watching them. I can do it for so long. <laughs> it gets ridiculous to admit. And time to time I started thinking like, why do I like to do it? Because they're so not guarded. Like they're so... So I have a theory that people that work or deal or watch or somehow encounter animals on a regular basis like you, I don't know, it's just kind of brings us to our very essence in a way. Yeah. Like, I don't know, it's ridiculous probably to say, no. but what do you think about it? No, I, oh my gosh, I think that's the coolest observation ever. And you and I have that in common. So growing up as a kid, that's what I would do. I'd go sit out in the desert and I would just sit there, stay stationary for hours and watch the wildlife and the little lizards and the birds and the quail and the bunnies like under a tree. And there's just something so magical about that. You know, I mean, these animals, they are so instinctual and there's just something so pure and wonderful about them and so vital to the health of the world and the planet. Being able to share our passion creates passion with others. And I think the more we can appreciate and save our wildlife, the we're saving our planet. Yeah. And we forget it. So thank you so much for bringing this whole thing, whole topic up. I had Christy Morcom. She is the Director of Media Relations at the Wildlife World Zoo. We all love. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope to see you at the zoo soon. You will. Thank you so much for inviting me too. I was joined by the Director of Media Relations at the Wildlife World Zoo, Christy Morcom. Thanks to all our listeners for being with us. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. This is Locally Grown in Arizona. I'm your host, Regina Rapazova.